Chapter 11 of Freaks on the Fells Three Months Rustication Story 1 by R. M. Ballantyne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 Still Lost. Meanwhile, Mrs. Sudbury was thrown into a species of frenzied horror which no words can describe, and which was not in any degree allayed by the grave shaking of the head with which Mr. McAllister accompanied his vain efforts to comfort and reassure her. This excellent man quoted several passages from the works of Dugald Stewart and Locke, tending to show in common parlance that necessity has no law, and that the rightly constituted human mind ought to rise superior to all circumstances, quotations which had the effect of making Mrs. Sudbury more hysterical than ever, and which induced Mrs. Brown to call him who offered such consolation a brute. But McAllister did not confine his efforts solely to the region of mind while he was earnestly administering doses of the wisdom of Stuart and Locke to the agitated lady in the parlor, Dan and Hugh, with several others, were, by his orders, arming themselves in the kitchen for a regular search. "'She's ready,' said Dan, entering the parlor unceremoniously with a huge stable lantern. "'That's right, Dan. Keep away up by the slate quarry and come down by the red tarn. If they've taken the wrong turn to the right, you're sure to fall in with em there away.' Sin Hugh round by the barn. I'll go straight up the hill and come down upon Loch Conyaholy. Give a shout now and then as you go. Dan was a man of action and few words. He vouchsafed no reply, but turned immediately and left the room, leaving a powerful odor of the buyer behind him. Poor Mrs. Sudbury and Tilly were unspeakably comforted by the grave, business-like way in which the search was gone about. They recalled to mind that a search of a somewhat similar nature and point of manner and time was undertaken a week before for a stray sheep, and that it had been successful. So they felt relieved, though they remained, of course, dreadfully anxious. McAllister refrained from administering any more moral philosophy, as he was not at all anxious about the lost party, and was rather fond of a sly joke. It remains to this day a matter of doubt whether he really expected that his nostrums would be of much use. In a few minutes he was breasting the hill like a true mountaineer, with a lantern in his hand and with Hobbs by his side. "'Only think, ma'am,' said Mrs. Brown, who was not usually judicious in her remarks, "'only think if they've been and fell over a precipice!' "'Shocking!' exclaimed poor Mrs. Sudbury, with a little shriek as she clapped her hands on her eyes. "'Poor Jackie, ma'am, perhaps he's lying home mangled in a heap at the foot of a—' "'Leave me!' cried Mrs. Sudbury, with an amount of sudden energy that quite amazed Mrs. Brown, who left the room feeling that she was an injured woman." "'Darling mamma, they will come back,' said Tilly, throwing her arms around her mother's neck and bursting into tears on her bosom. "'You know that the sheep, the lost sheep, was found last week and brought home quite safe. Dan is so kind, though he does not speak much, and you too. They will be sure to find them, darling mamma.' The sweet voice and the hopeful heart of the child did what philosophy had failed to accomplish. Mrs. Sudbury was comforted. Thus we see not that philosophy is a vain thing, but that philosophy and feeling are distinct, and that each is utterly powerless in the domain of the other. 
When Peter was left alone by his master, as recorded in a former chapter, he sat himself down in a cheerful frame of mind on the sunny side of a large rock, and gave himself up to the enjoyment of thorough repose, as well mental as physical. The poor lad was in that state of extreme lassitude which renders absolute and motionless rest delightful extended at full length on a springy couch of heath with his eyes peeping dreamily through the half-closed lids at the magnificent prospect of mountains and glens that lay before him and below him too so that he felt like a bird in mid-air looking down upon the world with his right arm under his meek head and both pillowed on the plaid with his countenance exposed to the full blaze of the sun and with his recent lunch commencing to operate on the system so as to render exhaustion no longer a pain but a pleasure peter lay on that knoll high up in the mountainside in close proximity to the clouds dreaming and thinking about nothing that is to say about everything or anything in an imbecile sort of way in other words wandering in his mind disjointedly over the varied regions of memory and imagination too tired to originate an idea too indifferent to resist one when it arose too weak to follow it out and utterly indifferent as to whether his mind did follow it out or cut it short off in the middle we speak of peter's mind as a totally distinct and separate thing from himself it had taken the bit in its teeth and run away he cared no more for it than he did for the nose in his face which was at that time as red as a carrot by reason of the sun shining full on its tip but why attempt to describe peter's thoughts here they are such as they were for the reader to make what he can out of them hi-ho comfortable now jolly what a place how i hate mountains climbing them dreadful like em to lie on though sun i like your jolly red-hot face sunday wonder if it's got to do with sun perhaps twinkle twinkle little sun how i wonder oh what fun won't i have such wonderful tales 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 stories of tales stick em on the end of puppy dogs and see how they'd look two or three two-legged puppies in the office what a difference now no ink bottles no smashings no quills plenty of geese though and grouse and hares what was i thinking about oh yes the office no scribbles no schools no desk november dear me that's funny november what's a vember cut him in two can't join him again no no snore at this point peter's thoughts went out altogether in sleep leaving the happy youth in peaceful oblivion he started suddenly after an hour's nap under the impression that he was tumbling over a precipice to give a little scream and clutch wildly at the heather was natural he looked around the sun was still hot and high scratching his head as if to recall his faculties peter stared vacantly at the sandwiches which lay beside him on a piece of old newspaper gradually his hand wandered towards them and a gleam of intelligence accompanied by a smile overspread his countenance as he conveyed one to his lips eating seemed fatiguing however he soon laid the remnant down drew the plaid over him nestled among the heather and dropped into a heavy sleep with a sigh of ineffable comfort when peter again woke up the sun was down and just enough light remained to show that it was going to be an intensely dark night can any one describe can any one imagine the state of peter's feelings certainly not peter besides being youthful was as we have said an extremely timid boy 
he was constitutionally afraid of the dark even when surrounded by friends what then were his sensations when he found himself on the mountain alone lost the thought was horror peter gasped he leaped up with a wild shout gazed madly around and sank down with a deep groan up he sprang again and ran forward a few paces precipices occurred to him he turned and ran as many paces backward bogs occurred to him he came to a full stop fell on his knees and howled up he leaped again clapped both his hands to his mouth and shouted until his eyes threatened to come out and his face became purple master master george hi hello jackie ho the o was prolonged into a wild roar and down he went again quite flat up he jumped once more the darkness was deepening he rushed to the right left all around tore his hair and gazed into the black depths below yelled and glared into the dark vault above poor peter thus violently did his gentle spirit seek relief during the first few minutes of its overwhelming consternation but he calmed down in the course of time into a species of mild despair a bursting sob broke from him occasionally as with his face buried in his hands his head deep in the heather and his eyes tight shut he strove in vain to blind himself to the true nature of his dreadful position at last he became recklessly desperate and rising hastily he fled he sought poor lad to fly from himself of course the effort was fruitless instead of distancing himself an impossibility at all times doubly so in a rugged country he tumbled himself over a cliff fortunately not a high one and found himself in a peat bog fortunately not a deep one this cooled and somewhat improved his understanding so that he returned to the knoll a wiser a wetter and a sadder boy who shall describe the agonies the hopes the fears the wanderings the faggings and the final despair of the succeeding hours it is impossible to say who will describe all this for we have not the slightest intention of attempting it towards midnight dan reached a very dark and lonely part of the mountains and was suddenly arrested by a low wail the sturdy celt raised his lantern on high just at that moment Peter's despair happened to culminate, and he lifted his head out of the heather to give free vent to the hideous groan with which he meant, if possible, to terminate his existence. The groan became a shriek, first of terror, then of hope, after that of anxiety, as Dan came dancing toward him like a jack-o'-lantern. "'What is she shrieking at?' said Dan. "'Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so woo!' Poor Peter seized Dan round the legs, for being on his knees he could not reach higher, and embraced him. "'What's got the meister?' Peter could not tell. "'Can she walk?' Peter could not walk. His limbs refused their office. "'Here, spill up on her back.' Peter could do that. He did it, and hugged Dan round the neck with the tenacity of a shipwrecked mariner clinging to his last plank. The sturdy Celt went down the mountain as lightly as if Peter were a fly, and as if the vice-like grip of his arms round his throat were the embrace of a worsted comforter. "'Here they are, Mom!' screamed Mrs. Brown. She was wrong. Mrs. Brown was usually wrong." Peter alone was deposited before the eager gaze of Mrs. Sudbury, who fainted away with disappointment. Mrs. Brown said, Be off to Peter, and applied scent bottles to her mistress. The poor boy's grateful heart wanted to embrace somebody, so he went slowly and sadly upstairs, where he found the cat, 
and embraced it. Hours passed away, and the Sudbury family still wandered lost and almost hopeless among the mountains. End of chapter 11 Recording by Pete McKelvin